Hi, and welcome back to Parkinson's in Perspective, where we bring you information about the origins, research, treatment, and future directions of Parkinson's disease. My name is Sarah Fargi, and I'm the current president of McGill Students for Parkinson's Awareness. Parkinson's disease is a fairly prominent disorder, and it affects more than 1% of the population over 65. It's a progressive neurodegenerative disorder with resting tremors, muscle rigidity, slow movements, and impaired balance. Each episode, we are fortunate enough to have a leading researcher in the field come and talk about their research and answer some of our questions. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Jean-Francois Trump. He's an associate professor at McGill in the Department of Pharmacology and has been since 2013. His research is focused on PINK1 and PARKIN, which are two neuroprotective genes implicated in early-onset Parkinson's disease. We want to thank you so much for joining our podcast today. This is one of our first ones that we're starting up on the year, so really excited that we get to start it off with you. Well, thank you for the invitation. That's a, that's a great opportunity. I, I always look forward to speaking to students because sometimes just talking to experts, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I think we, this is a way we have a, a, an impact too, right? So, yeah, thank you. Oh, perfect. Yeah, we really want to focus on trying to get the information out so that way it's really accessible to everyone, even if you don't have a science background. So we're glad that you kind of see that mission too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll just kind of jump into some of the questions. So I know that you do a lot of research on um, early onset Parkinson's disease. For the listeners, would you be able to go into how early onset differs from the classical Parkinson's disease? Yeah, well, we can maybe start with uh, some definitions. Right. So what is young onset? What is late onset Parkinson's disease? So the um, the main difference, obviously, is age. And so we can use an arbitrary sort of divider. Right? We can say people who are less than 50 years old, that would be considered young onset. Uh, there is even another classification where you can say that uh, patients who are less than, say, uh, 20 uh, five years old, that would be uh, juvenile uh, Parkinson's disease. Yeah, So this would be part of the young onset or early onset Parkinson's disease. These two terms are used interchangeably. Um, so the first thing to know is that um, early onset Parkinson's disease is very rare, much more rare than the uh, late onset Parkinson's disease. I think, I mean, the, the numbers vary across different population and even different studies. But, you know, just to give you a sort of a rough idea, it's maybe less than 2% of all Parkinson's cases that are less than 40 years old. So that's one difference, right? So it's much more rare. Um, another important difference is, um, is in terms of the disease presentation and how fast it progresses. So uh, you are probably well aware as a society for uh, that, that is uh, in, in interested in Parkinson's disease, right? So you're familiar with some of the main symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. So we can start talking about them. So for example, we have gait instability, uh, we have stiffness, right? So rigidity um, in, in movements. And then there's the, the uh, rest uh, tremor, right? So that's the, sh- the, the, the shaking, okay? Uh, for example, of the hands, uh, which can happen on both sides or just one side. Um, and then there's, um, um, there's uh, other symptoms that, 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 are, we're, that I think we'll, I believe we're going to talk about them more, but there's also non-motor symptoms, right, that are uh, quite prevalent and quite incapacitating. 
but are probably less well known, right? So we're talking about depression, uh, so clinical depression. Um, so these are some of the uh, symptoms that can show up in Parkinson's disease in general. Now, if we just look at, we compare early onset with late onset, we, we find the same symptoms, but in different proportions, because all of these symptoms do not appear all at once in the same order or at the same time, uh, as you may be aware. And so, for example, um, rest tremor is often, not always, but is often the first sign of Parkinson in the late onset. But it's, out, it's not all or none, right? So I don't want you to make you know, sort of very distinct categories. It's like you can have also rest tremor in early onset. And, you know, and the first symptoms could be uh, stiffness in, in late onset too, okay? So it's just about the proportions are changing. Depression seems to be a lot more common in early onset uh, Parkinson's disease, um, as much, I think, as 50% of all early onsets. So that's pretty... Uh, uh, dramatic here as a difference. Um, uh, are you familiar with the word, if I say dyskinesia? So that means exaggerated movements, right? So, mm -hmm. so we, of course, there are sometimes the problem is that you're, there's not enough movement, not enough incapacity to doing voluntary movements. But um, uh, patients with early onset, I think they have a higher proportion also of dyskinesia, which is often induced by the drugs themselves. Um, which we, we, can, we can discuss further, yes. So these are some of the differences. Um, and one, maybe one more point I'd like to bring up here is the importance of genetics in early onset Parkinson's disease. So most uh, late onset Parkinson's disease doesn't, I mean, most cases do not have a familial history. Okay, so that's mm -hmm. why we call it sporadic. Uh, but in, in early onset case, the younger the patient is, the more likely it is that it's a genetic form. Um, and there are several genes, actually, that contribute to these uh, early onset forms of Parkinson's disease. Okay, mm -hmm. perfect. It's interesting to hear that even though both kind of have similar symptoms, the way that they present often differ between the two. Yes. And so for early onset Parkinson's, do you find that they're progressing a lot slower then? because they're getting these symptoms, is it like a slower kind of build up for it? Or is it kind of like they both get at the same rate for progression? No, they, they, they definitely they... progress. So there's, uh, there's been several studies on, on this, but if people, uh, for example, do, do you know the, um, there are different scales to measure the, the severity of the, of the symptoms in Parkinson's disease? For example, like the Han and Yar uh, scale. And so you can basically, mm -hmm use the scale to characterize at what extent the disease has been progressing, right? Or what is the, the uh, disease severity at different stage? And you find that the early onset patient slowly toward the, towards the late stage, the more severe states, stages of Parkinson's disease. So we're talking maybe like a 10-year window for late onset, 10 to 20 years window, and a maybe 20 to 40 years window for early onset. So it starts earlier, but it progresses more slowly. And usually the patients respond also better to, to symptomatic treatments like levodopa um, um, and also deep brain surgery. Okay, well, at least that's comforting knowing that even though they're getting it a little bit earlier, maybe that they're, at least they're not getting it as strong kind of, and they can have therapies that are working for them. So it's nice Correct. to at least hear that. Yeah, well, the, the, I would say the counterpart to this is that this is typically at an age where 
people are probably more active, you know, so we're talking 40 years old. So maybe, you know, patients will have families and they have young kids. And so it, it hits them at a point in, in, in their life, right, where they, they need most to be active. Not saying that at late stages is not bad, but it's, it's it, and adding to this, the depression aspect, it, it's pretty, um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it needs treatment for sure. That's, uh, that's what I'd like to say. But yes, it, yeah. does, it progresses more slowly. People sometimes think that Parkinson does not have cognitive decline, which is not quite true. Uh, it's especially for late onset uh, cases, there's going to be cognitive decline accompanying the severity of the motor symptoms. But in mm-hmm. early onset, this is actually happening at a lot later, at, at a much later stage. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. And then I know when before you were kind of talking about some of the differences between early onset and late onset Parkinson's, you noted that early onset usually ha- is caused by some sort of like genetics that can be passed down. And whereas late onset kind of has a sporadic origin. Um, what are some of the genes that are involved in it and how do they play into early onset Parkinson's? Yeah. Um, so, so the first thing to maybe uh, point out here is that um, there's probably just, there, there's over 20 genes uh, that have been identified and associated with Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and they differ, right? So some genes, so think about just one gene. So that one gene will be associated mostly with early onset Parkinson's disease. Other genes are, are associated with late onset Parkinson's disease, right? So that distinction can be made. And so if we just think about the early onset cases, well, um, we can think about two genes that have been uh, quite uh, heavily studied and their names are Parkin and, and Pink One. Um, so Parkin, in fact, was the first gene associated with early onset Parkinson's disease, hence its name, right? So it was named after the disease, the, the gene. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the discovery goes back to 1998 from, and, and they stem from basically studying these, um, family, families with a strong history uh, of uh, inherited Parkinson's disease, right? So basically these disease are uh, what we call uh, recessively inherited. So for, you know, for those of you less familiar with genetics, what that means is that, so you know that for every gene that you have, you'll have two copies, okay? Mm-hmm. So you receive one copy from your father and one copy from your mother. And recessive mutations means that you need to have a mutant form of the genes or a non-functional form of the gene from both your parents. So let's say that your parent, your, your father has a, 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 a normal copy and a mutated copy, okay? So because he has, your father does not have Parkinson's disease. If your mother has a normal copy and a mutated copy, she does not have Parkinson's disease. Now, by pure chance, if you one of the offspring with both bad copies, right? So the father will give one of the two, the mother will give one of the two. And so the, the, the patient will have both mutated copy. That patient will have uh, almost 100% certainty uh, of having Parkinson's disease if he inherited two, um, two damaged, um, uh, what we call allele or, ver- or copy of that, of that gene. 
Um, and so this is from studying these families, right? So we can see that, of course, there's going to be many offspring, but not all of them, right? Because a lot of the offspring can receive a normal copy and they won't have it, right? So the, the siblings of that person with Parkinson's disease may not have Parkinson's, okay? Um, but this is how these genes were basically discovered. Now, it's these diseases, uh, so mutations in, in Parkin or pink one cause a very similar type of early onset Parkinson disease, which basically follows some of the symptoms we've described before. So they, they, they progress very slowly, they respond well to L-DOPA, um, not much cognitive decline, right? Um, so it's pretty typical early onset Parkinson disease. And the age can range from as early as 18 years old uh, all the way to 50 years old. So the, and it depends on the mutations. It depends on where the mutation is in the gene. Okay. Now, um, it, it, it seems that I'm trying to understand what these genes do in the body would be critical to understand Parkinson's disease, right? And that is really what has been driving a lot of the research. Um, because, you know, even I would say up to this day, I mean, we understand a lot more than we did about Parkinson's disease, but we really do not yet have a, a fundamental understanding of the mechanisms at play. And the idea is that these, these genes give us insight into what goes wrong in Parkinson's disease. Um, I can maybe explain how these uh, genes function. Um, so is that something you want to oh, follow that would be through great. now? Or, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would be great, okay. especially to kind of get a, some background information for the listeners. So that way you can kind of see some of the science behind how it plays out. Absolutely. And I know if I may just actually offer a disclaimer here, I offered a lot of <laughs> clinical information, but I'm, mm -hmm. I am not a clinician myself. <laughs> okay, so please <laughs> consult your, your physician before, <laughs> before taking this, but you know, this is from literature, right? That I've, Don't I've, worry, I, I think you're more than this. qualified. <laughs> I am probably more qualified to speak about this than the, the, the function of those two genes, Parkin and Pink One. This is what I've been studying for the last 10 years. Um, so the first thing to understand is that genes are recipes for proteins, okay? And so the gene for, the Parkin gene will basically, is a recipe for making Parkin protein, and the pink one gene is a recipe for making the pink one protein. So we interchangeably will call sometimes the pink one gene or the pink one protein. There's a direct relationship between them. And the mutations that cause early onset Parkinson disease basically render the protein non-functional. It cannot work. It's completely damaged, right? And that's why it's, it, that explains why the mutations are recessive. That's why if you have one normal copy of the gene, it's still fine because you still have one functional copy of the protein. So now what are the, so the, the interest here is now trying to understand what is the normal, because then you can understand how the lack of these proteins will cause Parkinson's disease. So we know that, the, that Parkinson's disease symptoms is caused by the loss of specific neurons in the brain. So the motor symptoms, for example, are caused by the loss of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra, which is a part of the midbrain. 
Okay, so this is deep in the brain. This is an area that's involved in the fine control of movements. And so if you lose those neurons, this is what leads to, um, to uh, Parkinson's disease. Now, these neurons happen to be absolutely gigantic. Okay, so they are, just think about like a sort of a, a, um, an octopus <laughs> with multiple <laughs> legs, right? Going in all di different directions. It's even worse than that. It's actually more like a tree. Um, so oh it has gosh. multiple branches, and each of those branches branches out into multiple little branches, okay? So this is what these dopaminergic neurons look like. They're huge. So they have huge what we call as arborization, right? From like in French, arbre, right? And so like tree. And, mm -hmm. and to sustain these, and so these neurons basically send dopamine. So it's a neurotransmitter which is lacking. That's why we give L-DOPA, which is a precursor of dopamine. Neurons produce dopamine. And to do so, they require a lot of energy. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. energy production in, in neurons is mediated through a, what we call the organelle. So an organelle is like an organ for a cell, right? So you have a lot of these little organelles going through your neurons. And this organelle we call a mitochondria. Okay. So there's a lot of mitochondria all throughout your neurons. In fact, you find mitochondria everywhere. They're not just in neurons, they're in your, in your heart, in your muscles, in your liver, everywhere. But these neurons are particularly sensitive to loss of mitochondrial function because they have such a high energetic demand. And so this is one of the ideas that a little bit of mitochondrial damage will selectively cause the loss of those neurons because they are the most sensitive to loss of, mit of mitochondrial uh, function, which I'll just remind you, are the main source of energy for neurons, okay? Mm. Parkin and pink one are involved in a, what we call a quality control pathway. So what that means is that they repair damaged mitochondria, okay? So if you lose Parkin and pink one, there's no more mitochondrial quality control. Now, Parkin and Pink One are not just in those neurons. They're everywhere in your body. But as I said before, those neurons, because of their specific, their really high energetic demand, are going to be the first one to suffer a loss of mitochondrial quality control. Does that make sense? It makes yes? a lot of sense. I know a lot of people who've uh, joked about having like a science course. The one thing that they always say is they remembered the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. So it's interesting Correct. to see how something when that starts to give away that it's yeah. really starting to lead to Parkinson's through this pathway. That's right. And so this is, so we've done a lot of research in the past years to understand how Parkinson and Pink One do that quality control. Okay. Um, and, and the way I like to portray this for non-scientists is, is the following. So think of Pink One as a sort of a, as an alarm, as a sensor. Okay. So it basically doesn't do anything until there is damage. And if there's damage, it basically starts to ring a bell <laughs> on the damaged organelle, okay? So it's kind of a bell for something that's damaging. Like, for example, like a, um, a fire detector, <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay? And Parkin is what we call the effector, right? So in this analogy of the fire detector, it's the, uh, the fire... Uh, <laughs> okay, that comes and <laughs> extinguish the fire. Okay, um, and so Parkin will basically come 
to the damaged mitochondria and take it away, right? That, it degrades it, okay? And that is very important. And you might say, well, it degrades it. That sounds bad, right? You don't want to degrade things. But what you have to understand is that mitochondria become turnover, which means that they're constantly removed and then replaced by new healthy mitochondria, okay? This is a process that always goes on in your neurons. So Parkin and pink ones seem to play a, a specific role in this, in this pathway, right? In, this, in, this, in, in, in basically mediating that replacement of bad mitochondria by healthy mitochondria. One is the, the, the sensor or the detector, and the other one is the effector, the one that actually does the, the repair. So you can see how losing the alarm while your, your effector, Parkin, cannot do anything because there's never an alarm, right? That, 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 that rings. And then if Parkin is away, well, even if the alarm is going on, there's no fireman <laughs> to <laughs> extinguish it, right? And so in both mm -hmm. cases, you lose the ability to repair uh, mitochondria. Oh, that's really interesting. I really like the analogy you have. It really helps play it out so people can really understand it. Uh, mm -hmm. Just kind of branching off that analogy, is there a point where the fire kind of gets too big, where it's like, even though you have these systems working, um, it's just there's nothing that the fireman can do or the alarm can't sound enough people to come for it to overcome this damage? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one example is, so as you say, right, it's the, the alarm and the fireman system doesn't work, but you can also get Parkinson's disease if the fire is too big. <laughs> and so... Uh, the, uh, the actual case, right, is where patients are exposed to drugs that actually specific or will, will basically damage mitochondria directly. So there's this really famous um, uh, case report from the early 80s. And there's a, this was actually a case uh, that was studied by a, a physician, um, uh, Dr. Langston. And he wrote a book about this, which is called The, the Case of the Frozen Addicts. Mm -hmm. And so these were um, drug addicts in, in the early 80s. And they were consuming just a recreational drug, which is called desmethylprotein. Okay. But this, it was a clandestine drug. And it was contaminated with another compound, which we called MPTP. Okay. Mm -hmm. And MPTP is a poison for mitochondria, okay? It will go directly to mitochondria and, and, and basically kill one specific protein in mitochondria that's really important for doing that energy production that we talked about. So, you know, you said it's a powerhouse of the cell, so you just go and interfere with the mouse. These patients develop Parkinson's symptoms very rapidly. And it was because they had lost the same neurons that are affected in Parkinson's disease. So they don't have Parkinson's disease per se. They have Parkinsonian symptoms. Yeah, so this, this very important clue about mitochondrial damage from coming from these um, patients who, who were actually consuming these, these, uh, the, the, these, these drugs actually led to a really important uh, research area, which is the link between pesticides and Parkinson's disease. Because it turns out that, so you remember that molecule MPTP I told you about? This is the, the, the part, the contaminant, right? In the recreational drug? Yes. 
which target basically one part of the, of the, of the mitochondria of the powerhouse. So it turns out that there are pesticides that are widely used called paraquat and rotenone mm -hmm. that basically will go and damage the same part of mitochondria that the drug does. And there is now very good evidence, epidemiological evidence, that exposure to rotenone actually increases incidence of Parkinson's disease. And it's most likely because of the mitochondrial damage. So wow. this has real-world incidence, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I believe that in, in, um, in, in France a few years ago, they, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, basically a lot of these pesticides were banned and it's a, and, and, and a lot of the farmers that were actually working with these pesticides, I mean, this has become a, a uh, occupational hazard, right? Um, yeah. Wow. It's interesting how some cases in real life who you wouldn't expect to have any connection to Parkinson's really set like a big connection for it that really starts to progress research into a new field for Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is, I think this is, I, I'd like to make a plea for, this is this points to the importance of basic research right? before mm -hmm. it's it's really important to understand how things work before you go and, and 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 make treatments because you really have to understand how things work because otherwise it's really complicated to tackle these complex disease right? in mm -hmm. fact you can even argue that l-dopa would not have occurred if there had not been research in the first place on neurotransmitters right and the mm -hmm. complexity of the nervous system. Yeah. Wow. That really goes to show you how your work on looking into Parkin and Pink One can really start to push the research forward. Because once you start to kind of understand the mechanisms that they work a little bit more, then that's when you can start to see some therapies being targeted towards them. That kind of brings me into my next question, where do you see specific therapies for Parkin and Pink One be making their way into the treatment landscape, or is there already efforts to kind of do that right now? Yeah, there are definitely efforts. There's nothing right now in clinical trials. Um, so maybe I'll just take a more like a bird's, bird's eye view, actually, of what the drug treatment landscape is for Parkinson's disease. So okay. as you are probably well aware, um, most treatments of Parkinson's disease are symptomatic, right? So they treat mostly the motor symptoms, not exclusively. In the case of early onset Parkinson's disease, we can give uh, the precursor of dopamine, which is called L-DOPA. So there's a drug called Cinemat, which is basically a slow-release form of L-DOPA, okay? So a lot of efforts, actually, are still, this is still actually an area of active research. And most drugs that are in clinical trials for Parkinson's disease aim to basically improve the symptoms. So we're talking about drugs like, like L-DOPA, but there's other drugs like benztropine, which is actually um, a drug that, that, is, uh, that uh, goes against uh, uh, acetylcholine. So basically, it also helps with a lot of the motor symptoms uh, that you find in early onset Parkinson's patients. So this is what we call like the whole symptomatic treatment of Parkinson's disease. But the goal is not just to treat the symptoms, because when you treat the symptoms, it does not prevent the progression of the disease. So in essence, what happens is that your, 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 the neurons that are affected in Parkinson's disease are lost constantly over time. And at some point, when there's no more cell left to, to treat, 
the, the treatment, the symptomatic treatments become ineffective. So that's why we need what we call in the jargon is we call them disease modifying treatments. So disease that these will be treatment that change the course of the disease that will basically Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this is where Pakin and Pigwan come in. Um, so um, there's a major effort in finding drugs that will stimulate the function of Pakin and Pigwan. As if you wanted Pinkwan to react earlier to fires or having you know, just you know giving uh, steroids to <laughs> to firemen, right? So um, to take again this analogy, um, yeah. <laughs> so this is one something that I'm doing in my lab, but many other labs in the world are doing. Um, it's pretty. So Parkin is a is a type of protein for which there's not many precedents for, for drugs. So the drugs that actually activate that kind of protein. And so the, the, the research is pretty difficult. But I'd like to point out that um, the kind of work that I do, um, so I, just to give my profession, I realize I haven't really said what I, the kind of stuff that I do, but I'm, I'm what we call a structural biologist. And so what I do is that I, I determine the, the atomic structure of these proteins. So these are tiny, tiny objects, right, which are one billionth the size of a meter, right, so in the nanometer range. And we use very elaborate methods to determine the structure in three dimensions. Things like mm -hmm. uh, electron methods like electron microscopy or X-ray uh, crystallography. So now, that's nine years ago, we solved the structure of Parkin by X-ray crystallography. And that structure um, told us that the protein, in fact, was what we called um, um, auto-inhibited. So what that means is that the protein is basically just inactive normally. But that makes sense. So it's like, is that, you know, it's like, again, taking the analogies, like your fireman in the fireman house, <laughs> not, <laughs> and, you know, not doing anything, right? So it's just auto, it doesn't do anything until it's basically activated by pink one. So pink one activates parking, right? Mm -hmm. Only when required, only when there's damage, right? Um, and so we understood how, with the structure, how parking is basically maintained in that sort of, inhibited state. And we were able to design ways of actually increasing its activity without pink one. Oh, that's very and, interesting. Yeah. And, and, and the really cool thing, so we had a study with uh, my uh, collaborator. So my collaborator is Edward Fon. He's the scientific director at the Montreal Neurological Institute. He's, he's a clinician, Parkinson's specialist. Um, and we had a study where what we tried to do is we, so basically this, this trick that we find to activate Parkin is based on a single mutation in the protein. So I told you that there are, right, there are mutants of Parkin that basically impair it, its function. So these cause Parkinson's disease. But we did a, what we call the synthetic mutation. So it's just like a, something that we engineered so it's not a disease-causing mutation. It's just another kind of mutation that basically... Uh, we combined this, these activated mutations with 
Parkinson's disease-causing mutation. What we were able to do is to rescue the function of these proteins. So that's quite amazing, right? Yeah. So we had like mutations that we know for sure cause Parkinson's disease in, in, because of mutations in Parkinson's. And we were able to rescue them to normal level. And so this is a, this is not a drug. It's a, it's what, it's what we call the proof of principle experiment that it's possible to actually do that. Now we're trying to find an actual drug that will basically do the same thing as our activating mutation. So that's one of our, uh, of the project going on in the lab right now. We can do the same thing with, with pink one incredible that you were able to find such strong evidence for your proof of concept so it's like i know drug development being like a pharmacology student is definitely a long and slow process but it's very promising to see something that you know that you can eventually work up to that and getting a drug yeah we we, we hope so i mean i i don't want to paint a rosy picture here as in i so we have to be well aware that most drugs right that we that will go into clinical trials don't make it for a reason or another. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, we, have, we have some reason to think that parking, that activating parking may not be beneficial necessarily. Um, so, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like we have done this proof of principle experiment, but then other people are finding that it may be it, overactivating parking may not be either. That there's a good reason why it's kept. <laughs> it's inhibited <laughs> normally, right? And so... Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fine balance, um, but the thing is that we don't know if it's a good drug until we make it. It's a conundrum, right? So it's like, so how do you know if it's going to be a good drug? Well, we have to make the drug, okay? Um, but we have alternative drugs that can activate pink one. This is a, a very active area of research as well. I'm actually, a, 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 I should disclose, I'm a consultant for a, a company uh, in, in, based in California, and I have actually a patented compound now uh, that targets pink one. It's not yet in, in clinical trials, um, but this is something that, that is basically also, also molecules or drugs, uh, candidate drugs that are uh, going after pink one too. Um, but this is not the only one, right? So there are other proteins involved in familial Parkinson's disease, uh, proteins like uh, synuclein, LUG2, and these are also drug targets. And so what I'm seeing now in the, uh, the horizon is that there's still a lot of basic research and some of these drugs will probably ins- enter clinical trials, you know, I would say in the next sort of five years for disease-modifying treatment. The clinical trial will take at least five, five years. Um, and so in a, at a horizon of 10 to 20 years for the next disease-modifying treatments, um, this may seem like a long time, uh, but on the good side, I would say, I don't think we've ever been, I mean, we have made so much progress in the last 10 years in our understanding of the disease. I'm really quite hopeful we'll, 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 we'll get somewhere. Yeah. Wow. Well, I definitely think the whole picture you've painted here today helps us really understand how even just starting off with basic research and then you're working your way up, it could honestly lead to a change in the treatment landscape down the line. And I think mm-hmm. like the specific drugs you're working on or consulting on don't make it in. It's nice to hear that there's a lot of work being done with other treatments as well. So hopefully one of them do play out in the next 20 years. We can reflect back on this. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think this is the, that's what the, this is the holy grail of, of Parkinson's research. But if I may 
say something here as a, um, I don't think there's going to be one wonder drug for Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. What I see the future, the fu- what, what the future is painting is something what we call precision medicine. So as we are able to find out about the genetics of Parkinson's disease patients, we'll be able to come up with more specialized treatments. So we may find that a given drug that activates Parkin only works for people with Parkin mutations, right? Maybe it doesn't work for the sporadic form of Parkinson's disease. And that's okay, right? I mean, then mm-hmm. that drug is going to treat that patient. If you have sporadic Parkinson's disease, then maybe you need another drug. And if you have a mutation in, another gene, in, a, in another gene called LERC2, then you'll take another drug, right? And so we have to think about Parkinson not being just one disease, but as a spectrum of diseases. Each of them potentially could be cured uh, by, um, by different drugs. Wow, that's definitely a, a great point to make too, is especially now, because right, I think you were mentioning before that treatment space is mostly based off um, symptoms, and that's why things like L-DOPA are often prescribed across all cases, because it acts mm-hmm. as a dopamine precursor. But it's definitely interesting to see that as we move into an age of personalized medicine, that more biomarkers are used are likely to work in a given patient subset. Absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. I think that mostly wraps up the topics that we want to cover today. Is there anything else that you would like to mention? Or? No, I, I just want to mention that, um, that if you have anyone has any question, feel free to reach out to me. McGill University has one of the strongest uh, parking uh, team uh, in, in the country, country even in the world. world right? I mean, we have, have, uh, we're really doing outstanding research, I believe. Not just me, obviously, but I'm talking about my colleagues at the Montreal Neurological Institute and, and, and also uh, and elsewhere um, at McGill, uh, for example, in the Department of Pharmacology, but also in the Department of Biochemistry. Um, so, and, and, you know, this is a community that's very strong in basic research, but there's also a lot of very interesting clinical research being conducted. Uh, I could name a few of my colleagues, but for example, um, the uh, scientific director uh, at Parkinson Canada is at McGill. His name is Ronald uh, Postuma. I don't know if you if you know him, um, but he's um, he's a uh, he's a clinician, a neurologist, and he's done pretty amazing work um, trying to find um, uh, ways of diagnosing Parkinson's disease before the occurrence of the motor symptoms. So that's one thing I wanted maybe to talk about is that so we we know about the the motor symptoms, but prior to the uh, motor symptoms, they are many times symptoms appearing before that. Um, and, and for example, uh, there are uh, sleep disorders that are associated with Parkinson's disease, and these often start before uh, the occurrence of the motor symptoms. And, and there's much work being conducted uh, trying to find out how we can use these symptoms to diagnose earlier, because we believe that maybe treating patients earlier Will improve the 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 uh, the symptomat the actually the uh, disease modifying treatments. Wow, that's definitely a promising area of research too that I'm sure our listeners can into more too. Exactly. I just want to thank you so much for taking your time to um, be our guest speaker on this episode. 
it's really great to hear such a prominent researcher explain and especially get your perspective on different types of forms of Parkinson's. We really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Of course. We'd like to thank our volunteer, Edward Herbal Sinatra, for helping to develop the transcript for this episode. McGill Students for Parkinson's Awareness works closely with Parkinson's Quebec, a foundation dedicated to providing support services to Parkinson's patients and their caregivers, as well as contributing to research, advocacy, and education. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's disease and would like to know more information on support services, physiotherapy, dance classes specifically for Parkinson's disease patients, and other services, please visit parkinsonsquebec.ca for more information. Thank you all so much for listening, and visit our website if you want to know more information about fundraising events, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. This has been Parkinson's in Perspective. Hi, and welcome back to Parkinson's in Perspective, where we bring you information about the origins, research, treatment, and future directions of Parkinson's disease. My name is Sarah Fargi, and I'm the current president of McGill Students for Parkinson's Awareness.